Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're coming to the close of Candleland's annual crowdfunding campaign with four days left to go. And for the first time in a while, it's well, it's actually not clear if we'll hit our goals. So here's why I think you should really strongly consider becoming a supporter or increasing your support if you already are one. A couple weeks ago when it looked like Twitter could plausibly collapse overnight, I really found myself terrified by the prospect of the, of the, the silence the quiet that would result? I mean, the world would still chug along much as before. News would still be reported. Information would still find many ways to flow. But the disappearance of the meta-conversation, that's lowercase m, meta, the meta-conversation, the conversation about the conversation, a shared space with ongoing scrutiny and analysis of not just the news, but how the news is told, the idea of that disappearing kind of shook me. And almost literally overnight, I, I kind of came to appreciate Shortcuts and Candleland on a level that I hadn't before. I've sometimes felt weird about this show, so frequently functioning as an extension of the discourse and drama of Twitter, a platform whose user base is, you know, compared to other social media, actually quite tiny. But maybe that's a feature of our offerings and not a bug. Or to put it another way, what we do at Candleland and on this show, Shortcuts in particular, provides value. We offer reporting on reporting, analysis of analysis, commentary on commentary. We look for patterns, details, trends, strange juxtapositions, and hypocrisies. We try to fill out what's missing and point to what could be done better. And I like to think that at our best, we do that with incisiveness, insight, and wit, all of which is to say is sort of like Twitter at its best. And we're going to keep on doing those things here, regardless of what one particular billionaire chooses to do with his platform. And we'll even undercut him, because our plans start at $7 a month. And for that, we can't promise a fancy blue check mark with which to mischievously impersonate brands and maybe try to crash their stock. But you do get ad-free podcasts, a host of other exclusive benefits, and more than that, the knowledge that you're investing in the future of a project that, thanks to that support will only keep getting better. And at a time when so much in the world is getting worse, that's that's something. Go to candleland.com slash join. Thanks.
Tree Paradkar, Toronto Star social and racial justice columnist. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Nice to meet you, Jonathan, in person, finally. Yeah, it's great to meet you, too. Uh, Today on the show, uh, two subjects that are not at all challenging to cover. Uh, Whether the Western media is being hypocritical when it comes to the focus on human rights abuses in Qatar, and how writing critically about Israel has somehow become even trickier than before. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Joshua Backer, perfect name, Ross Kerr-Wilson, Matthew Kwan, Gregory Forrest, Natalie Rushlow, Ashley Doucette, Zachary Rempel, and Marilyn. Hi, I'm Marilyn. I really appreciate the coverage and perspectives Canada Land provides about stories in Canada and beyond. And I really like it when Jesse gets into real true conversations with his guests. Cup is meant to be a global celebration. But along with all those cheers, this time around, there's been a whole lot of criticism and condemnation. Resource-rich Qatar already heavily criticized for its treatment of the migrant workers who built the massive World Cup infrastructure. Qatar has faced unprecedented criticism, he tells them. Many are questioning the motives behind it. The fact that this tournament is being held in Qatar has been the subject of fierce criticism in the country and, and its rules, its laws. If somebody thinks by just hammering and criticizing and hammering and criticizing we achieve something well i can tell you we achieve exactly the opposite don't criticize qatar don't criticize the players don't criticize anyone criticize fifa criticize me if you want because i'm responsible for everything but let the people enjoy this world cup so the world cup is on and let's hear it for canada's boys Uh, not not really i can't pretend to know much about or engage with organized sports any more than 90 percent of our listenership could tell you what musicals are their favorites to win big at next spring's tony awards but i do find the socio-political context fascinating sports is a realm that much of the time is covered as though it exists in a political vacuum I remember that when the Olympics were hosted in Russia in 2014, there was a surprising degree of resistance to examining the event in the context of Putin's then-recent crackdown on LGBT rights in particular, and the accompanying fear-mongering and state-sanctioned violence against those populations. So eight years later, it feels like a sea change that a global sporting event is being so regularly examined in the context of the rights record of its authoritarian host nation. I mean, I know I've had occasion to learn more about the conditions of migrant workers in the Middle East than I ever had previously. But, and this being shortcuts, there's always a but, how much of this new thoughtfulness about politics and sport is due to an evolved understanding that nothing exists in a vacuum, and how much is because Qatar in particular happens to align with long-standing Western tropes about the Middle East? And how does one possibly untangle that? Shri, I mean, you've described the critiques of Qatar as being both accurate and unfair. Could you explain how you parse that? Yeah, for sure. I wrote a column recently about this in the Toronto Star, mainly because I was trying to sort out my own reflections on this issue. On the one hand, it's completely accurate to blame Qatar for human rights abuses or to hold it responsible for its human rights abuses against migrant workers, for even the fact that homosexuality is still criminalized and, you know, perhaps the fact that it bribed FIFA to get the hosting rights. Although, of course, it's more FIFA's fault, really. Mm. But even as recently as, was it 2017, 
when Sidney Crosby decided to go to the White House to meet Donald Trump. And I had written about that. And the pushback was, we don't mix sports and politics. Right. And then when uh, Colin Kaepernick took the knee, he was immediately castigated and, you know, he's, he's now out of the sport, although, although what he did was so inspiring to so many. So there's been this posturing, even in recent days, uh, well past, say, the you know, Russian Olympics, that sports and politics don't mix or, and that, that it's unnecessary for them to mix. So what changed? Mm-hmm. And to my mind, look, it's easy to say... Western hypocrisy. You know, it's easy to blame the West. You know, West is often to blame for hypocrisy. But that's not all it was. And I thought it was important to kind of say, okay, so it's hypocrisy is part of it. Orientalism is a huge part of it, which is something that Edward Said in the 1970s, a term that he coined, and he talks about it as the Western gaze on the Middle East and Arab nations as being essentially stagnant and degenerate, right? Like Mm -hmm. any glory that they had was in the past. Mm -hmm. And they are now a stagnant culture. So it's not just economically or militarily, we're talking about culturally backward. And I feel like this gaze, the coverage around Qatar, while warranted or while accurate, only served to cement that Orientalist outlook. And that, too, wasn't enough because I just thought, okay, how is it working? So the hypocrisy and the Orientalism is not working, and which is why I remembered the study that I had uh, read in the context of Mm -hmm. experiences of minority employees, women of color in workplaces. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, an academic uh, analysis based on experiences of women of uh, of faculty of color Mm -hmm. in academia. The title is Scrutinized but not recognized is the name of the title. It talks so wonderfully about what visibility means, what invisibility means, and what hypervisibility means. But your argument basically is that that Qatar and the World Cup has sort of moved into hypervisibility, maybe to a degree that's disproportionate? Yes. So hypervisibility happens when a person of who's considered low status, so in an interpersonal level to understand it there first, when a person who's considered low status, who is invisible if they're doing well or they're doing decently, but if they are perceived as putting a toe out of line, mm. then there's this big hue and cry, right? So mm. hypervisibility is heightened scrutiny that's based on a perceived difference, mm. which is misinterpreted as deviance. And so if you look at it through a geopolitical lens, Mm -hmm. nobody cared about Qatar. You know, it came into some prominence on our radar because it won hosting rights for the World Cup. And there were stories about, as there should be, about the abuses of migrant workers. Mm -hmm. But now it's become like this way bigger thing, like an exceptionally bad place. I don't know that if this coverage is actually getting the justice or if it just cements the impression that people have of the Middle East as this backward place? It's an excellent question. Before reading your column, I ha- that lens hadn't actually hadn't occurred to me here because I, yeah, I mostly had seen it or have, and still do to an extent, see this is like, okay, sports journalism is starting to engage with the world around it and starting to look at the mechanics of these things a bit more. And I tried to figure out sort of 
is there a way to actually illustrate this hypervisibility? Or so I, I, it's a wildly imperfect analysis, but I, I like to do aggressive searches of the ProQuest newspaper database to look for, for macro trends over time, and it constantly thinks I'm a bot because of that. Over the past 20 years, the Star, Globe, and Post have each run about 500 articles that contain the words Qatar and human rights. If you exclude the words World Cup, that actually only cuts out about 100 per publication, which was less than I expected. I mean, obviously, with the stories that remain, that doesn't tell you the extent of the focus on Qatar or even the context. I mean, it could just be included in lists of countries that do this or that. But it was more than I expected, which made me also wonder, like, is it possible that the World Cup isn't just resulting in more coverage, but also drawing attention to ongoing issues in ways that conventional international news coverage otherwise might not? Mm -hmm. If it's doing that, I think that's wonderful, great. Mm. But even within that coverage, what I'm not finding is if somebody's talking about how Qatar bribed FIFA, mm -hmm. they're making no reference to allegations that Germany did the same mm -hmm. thing, right? Or if you're talking about how homosexuality is banned, they're making no reference to how during the 1994 World Cup, you know, it was homosexuality was not legal nationally mm -hmm. in the U.S., right? That only happened in 2003. So I'm not even saying, oh, let's mm. go back to that time and why didn't we do it? No, and exactly. so we can't do it. No, I'm saying now when we're doing it, we're still not contextualizing it as, hey, this is not the first time that this is happening, right? Not to minimize mm. what's going on. Mm. That is not at all the point. But to just say that you're not singling out this one place for criticism for things that others have also done. Yeah, um my instinct, like I originally, was sort of like to push back at the sort of the notion of hypocrisy, since like many, you know, many outlets do a very good job of covering human rights abuses both at home and abroad, and in very at, in different countries. And it's just because it is being singled out now doesn't mean that human rights coverage isn't happening generally. But you know, your column did prompt me to take a closer look at some coverage in particular, and like. I mean, the Toronto Sun is always an easy place to go for examples, but like, yeah, the front page of the Sun, the Toronto Sun on Sunday, November 20th, blared, human rights red card, Qatar should never have been chosen to host World Cup. At that pointed to a Brian Lilly column that touched on the country's attitudes to a range of things, including LGBTQ rights. And it was, yeah, they had, the column had the attitudes you'd expect. But inside that front cover was a full page rundown of the Sun's top online stories in the previous week, which included one headlined request for information on Oakville trans teacher to cost $3,000. Um, or last Thursday, the Sun's editorial board noted that the LGBTQ rainbow flag has been banned from the World Cup and athletes have been warned not to wear it on their uniforms. The same morning that ran, the paper's columnist Joe Warmington was tweeting a grainy video. This is the hashtag drag storytime event at Terry Berry Library Hamilton now. Witnesses say about 40 children inside event, which goes from newborn to four years old. I mean, Thankfully, Joe Warmington does not run a nation state. The Toronto Sun is, as often the case, a kind of blunt or even extreme example. But to what extent do you find a similar lack of self-awareness to be characteristic of mainstream media generally? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, what I find fascinating is that LGBTQ2 plus rights are being threatened in the U.S. at this moment. Mm -hmm. And even that does not get a mention in the horror over homosexuality being illegal in Qatar. It should not be illegal in Qatar. In an ideal world, Qatar would have not frowned upon homosexuality at all. There are places in the world not touched by colonization where trans rights or you know, transsexuality is not considered, is not frowned upon. Mm. Like I think of Thailand, right? Cultures where, you know, certainly in India, 
in the past, I can't say that for post-colonial India, but in the past where you had gender fluidity as very much part of the culture, mm-hmm. we even have a god who's transgender, right? Mm-hmm. So there's nothing inexorably modern about being open to LGBTQ2 mm-hmm. rights at all. So I think it's just the chafing. I think I think there's a lot of chafing against the Western posturing of caring for these progressive values while at the same time shooting them with the other hand at home. That, I think, is mm-hmm. what grates me. If we're talking about migrant workers in Qatar, where is the outrage from these right-wing newspaper mm-hmm. or news organizations about the plight of migrant organizations in migrant farm workers in uh, Canada? Right. It's so it's that's the hypocrisy, which Mm -hmm. does great. We talk about the Qatari workers being beholden to their employers for their Mm -hmm. visas. But then the same thing happens here with those migrant farm workers or with international Mm -hmm. students. You talk to an, you know, an Uber driver who is an international student who will tell you that they're paying double the fees. But then they are beholden. If they get a job as a waiter, they just take it because they're hoping to get that work permit or they have a work permit for a year. But then they are beholden to whoever they're employed to. Right. So context, context. None of it is right, but just context. Yeah. I mean, I'd like I'd like to think that if like thousands of migrant workers were dying in Canada, that would receive a prompt a greater reaction. But maybe I'm maybe overly optimistic well, there. So thousands of migrant workers dying that I think you're alluding to the Guardian study that talked about 6000 migrant workers dying since the year 2000. 2010, which is a a horrible, uh, horrible statistic. And there's no justification. And I know Qatar says, well, but they weren't the ones dying, building the World Cup and whatever. It doesn't matter. These were the workers dying. I think, though, that death often becomes, as in the case of police brutality, death becomes the metric by which we decide whether something's really bad. Mm. Uh, And there are there are Mm -hmm. situations of living horrific uh, you know, horrific situations of abuse that are then reduced into, well, at least they're not dying. And I don't think we have those numbers for death. But at the same time, we know that migrant workers get sent back if they have injuries and if they are disabled and they get sent back. And now they're unable to not only be here and provide, but they're unable to be there and provide for injuries that they've sustained for Canada and for us. I mean, it was another point that in the column I was like, my instinct was sort of to push back and, yeah, to say, like, you know, maybe it's not exactly comparable or maybe Canada at least is growing in incrementally in self-awareness. This is another pair of headlines. This one from The Globe. A report by their Asia correspondent James Griffith on November 11th. As World Cup 2022 nears, questions remain about whether Qatar has improved migrant worker conditions. For families whose loved ones died on the job in the pre-tournament construction boom, questions remain for Qatar and FIFA about who gets redressed and who doesn't, which is a very reasonable subject for an article. And it's probably, I actually can't say I've read it, but it seems reframed responsibly. But then... A contributed op-ed from an, that ran in the Globe business section from an oil think tank last week, the headline online was, we built the railway in five years, so why are so many mega projects now stalled? Which mm. mostly yada, yada, yadas over the thousands of migrant workers Oof. killed in the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. It does briefly acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, 100, 150 years ago that that happened, but still the fact that an exploitative yeah, let's transnational bring back migration. indentured labor. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of push back against the idea that, look, we are a little better because we are getting self-aware. I don't think self-awareness is the problem. And mm. 
and that's happening on a timeline that we cannot be satisfied with. If you ask an indigenous person or mm-hmm. a black, particularly a black descendant of slaves here, then sure, yeah. you know, slow clap, you're getting self-aware now. Comparisons are so difficult. The point is, are there violations or are there not? Yes. Okay. Then are we covering them equally or are we not? And right now the answer is not. So how do we explore it? And so I think, you know, I often used to think Twitter is the place where nuance goes to die. But now I've realized, I think all society, like we are so primed to think in Hollywood ideas or Disney fairy tale mm-hmm. ideas of good and bad. You know, but I kind of mm. wish we were more in TV land where you understand the intrinsic evil of a Tony Soprano, but you also see that he has a human side, mm. right? So that's <laughs> where I think, you know, we we should be able to acknowledge that the Middle East is not just this all bad thing. All of these bad things are happening and we should cover them as we should cover our own, as we should cover it with any sports event. There is no nation where you can host this event, which is going to be blemish free somehow. Right. So we should be covering all of that, but we don't. And I think that's the point I want to make without justifying Mm -hmm. or minimizing any of the many abuses by Qatar. So the world isn't made up of heroes and villains so much as prestige TV antiheroes. Correct. Well put. (laughs) (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Shri, on this show, we like to duly note things. Today, I'd like to note duly 
a decision by the National News Media Council last week. The News Media Council is this official but voluntary body that most major print or written publications in the country uh, belong to that sort of renders outside decisions on in relation to complaints and uh, around coverage. So they had a decision concerning a complaint about a Conrad Black column in the National Post from August titled, Donald Trump will be a successful president again. Uh, the complaint wasn't about accuracy, but it was pretty great. Here's how they summarized the issue. Ron Regier filed a complaint with the NNC stating concern that the opinion article did not include a disclaimer about the fact that the columnist was granted a pardon for a felony conviction by the former U.S. president. Yay. Good for Ron Regier for doing that and for trying. I mean, they they dismissed the complaint. They've ultimately agreed with the National Post contention that at this point, most readers could reasonably be expected to be aware of that having happened to Black since he has written about it and the Post has written about it so much. I don't think it's an unreasonable decision, but at the same time, when you read that sentence out, that like, oh, the opinion article did not include a disclaimer about the fact the columnist was granted a pardon for a felony conviction by the person he's writing about. Like, oh, yeah, why why do we accept that? Like, oh, yeah, that's just what our newspapers do. They just... Yeah. <laughs> so basically, because he's famous enough, you're reasonably expected to understand that he might well have a conflict of interest here, but he's not required to declare it. I think it's because, like, he has written about it before and the Post has written about it before that if someone's reading a Conrad Black column, they probably know who he is in relation to Trump. I, I, I took that as the argument. Then, and no, I, I think that, yeah, that sounds like that is the argument, but is that fair? Yeah. Um, can I say that I've, you know, written about or I have some kind of a conflict of interest with something that I've written about in the past and then expect that mm-hmm. every time somebody reads my piece that they would know that, well, we've yeah. said so? Yeah, um, no, that, no. That, that is the question. The Post did say that they would sort of have discussions going, more scrutinary discussions going forward about when that disclaimer may be necessary in his columns. I mean, I, who knows if that'll happen. That seemed to placate the News Media Council. Yeah. And I mean, it just takes one line. It just, it's not a yep. big deal. And I think it was very sharp of whoever wrote that to kind of point to this very, you know, clear journalistic violation. Mm. Uh, just requires one line to declare mm-hmm. the conflict of interest so that any reader who's new, isn't that how we're supposed to write and speak? That we assume that people don't have the same baseline as us. Um, and therefore, if there is somebody who is new to the country, has no clue who this man is, is reading the paper, knows that there is a conflict of interest here. And it's not an honest, uh, disinterested opinion. And I'm sure Black would love another opportunity to just talk about how he was, in his view, oh, deeply wrongfully convicted. <laughs> Duly noted. So, Tree, what would you like to note, Duly? I would like to note a thing inside a thing. Okay. Inside a thing. Ooh, what uh, so the outermost context is I was just at a media roundtable in Ottawa last month organized by Dave Seglins of the mm-hmm. CBC and Matthew Pearson of uh, Carlton uh, talking about mental health of journalists and talking about how media workers, so journalists and everybody who works in newsrooms, face 10 times the rates of diagnosed anxiety and five times the rates of diagnosed depression compared to the general Canadian public. And about 11 percent, one in 10 journalists have suicidal thoughts. This is not normal. It's not just an occupational hazard. So as an industry, we need to do something about this and something Mm -hmm. big. Within that context, I think, as with everything, a cornerstone has to be Looking into journal, looking at journalists of color, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, issues around equity and representation have to be the cornerstone of any policy that we take. And so we look at online harassment and 
its implications for mental health. And online harassment happens for women, happens for journalists of color, uh, especially, and women of color, especially. Mm -hmm. And so the point that I wanted to note was the harassment being faced by Erica Eiffel, mm. the Ottawa journalist, a black woman mm. who's bold, who's loud, who makes people, the establishment, very uncomfortable because she is as anti-establishment as you can get mm. in terms of how she expresses her views mm. and in terms of the fact that she doesn't let things drop. Mm. Right, which is a quality that would be very admired in somebody that's considered a natural authority, right? Uh, mm. Let's say a white middle-aged <laughs> white man, right? That same quality would be very, very held up very much. But in her, it's not. And right now, she was at a panel talking about the online harassment of journalists when she got harassed by somebody apparently trying to serve her a notice mm. for something she said on Twitter. Essentially, it was a an opportunity for a video by this other person. And there's not a lot of solidarity happening. So I wanted to note mm. publicly my solidarity for Erica Eiffel in particular, for black women journalists, uh, for women of color, for all women who face harassment, and in the context of this mm. awful thing of mental health. Duly noted. He's still the biggest draw in the Republican Party, but former President Donald Trump is in hot water again. Donald Trump facing growing backlash tonight to his dinner last week with prominent white nationalist Nick Fuentes at his private Mar-a-Lago club. He hosted a dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West and an infamous Holocaust denier. So two days before the 2016 American election, Daniel Dale, who's now a CNN reporter, but at the time was the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star, penned a reflection on his 16 months covering the U.S. election that year, observing that it had made him more acutely aware of both his whiteness and his Jewishness. His whiteness because of the privilege afforded to him when covering Trump rallies where the attendees were generally courteous to him, and his Jewishness because a reply from an alt-right tweeter insulting Israel and calling it his country, he's not Israeli, was, he noted, the first anti-Semitic thing anyone had ever said to him. And as a white Jewish guy myself, that's a paradox that's only become more acute in the years since because, like, in some ways, Jews are more firmly ensconced in whiteness and its attendant privileges than ever before, while at the same time are also now being racialized with a frequency and to an extent that hasn't been the case in decades. What that's meant in practice is like, as a white guy, I've never been subjected to a sustained campaign of harassment or hatred online. Like, I've never had felt compelled to block anyone on Twitter, which is wild. I've been on Twitter a long time. But on a handful of occasions over the past few years, there have been flurries, usually lasting a couple days each, in which supporters of like Faith Goldie or Lauren Southern have bombarded me with alarming stuff that I describe as not just explicitly, but enthusiastically anti-Semitic. And speaking of Faith Goldie, the fourth anniversary of her wedding is coming up this week. Uh, among, <laughs> among the guests who joined her in Prague was her friend Nicholas Fuentes, who was the Holocaust denier who hung out with Trump and Kanye West at Mar-a-Lago last week, which I think is a solid illustration of how anti-Semitism is inching from the edges toward the mainstream. Meanwhile, in the words of the UN's Middle East envoy, tensions between Israelis and Palestinians are again reaching a boiling point with recent attacks against civilians on both sides. In all of this context, it's now become even trickier and more fraught to engage in examinations of definitions of anti-Semitism and how sometimes or how they can be wielded for a different sort of political purpose, namely to dismiss criticisms of policies of an increasingly far-right Israeli government. And because you're one of the bravest mainstream columnists in Canada, Shri, last week you tackled just that in a column that 
online carried the headline, Why the Definition of Antisemitism Has Become Such a Polarizing Issue. Critics say adheres to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition is being used as a blunt tool to silence criticism of Israel. Could you talk about that and the response that you received to that column? The response, in one word, is it was predictable. Any time I've written about the chilling effect, about the fact that journalists are reluctant to wade into any criticism of Israel— I know why. It's because the pushback is hard, it's fast, it is meant to be a deterrent. If not to me, then to other journalists who look at it and say, oh, I really don't want that happening to me. And so I cannot tell you the number of journalists who have wanted to pitch stories about the Israel-Palestine issue, who've reached out to me and asked me, what was your experience like? How did you deal with it? Because you know already in advance of doing it that there is going to be pushback, not Mm -hmm. just from within the organization, but from outside as well. So this particular piece that I wrote, you talked Mm -hmm. about this complexities going in. It's true that these are complex, very, very complex issues. At the same time, there is a simplicity to understanding that you can have definitions of hate that does not in turn silence somebody else looking for justice. Mm -hmm. That should be pretty straightforward. And that is not happening. In the past couple of years, the government of Canada, the government of Ontario, and various councils, uh, like city councils, have adopted a motion to accept a definition of anti-Semitism by the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, that created this non-binding working definition of anti-Semitism in 2016. And that definition says that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals. Okay, and are their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I know. Fine. That's, it's, you know, the two-sentence definition itself is pretty unobjectionable. It is. Un, it is. It's, it could be it's vaguer, better, I think but it, it could be sharper. Okay. It could yeah. just say any hate that is directed towards Jewish mm-hmm. people for being Jewish or Jewish institutions for being Jewish, right? But okay, fine. But then there are some 11 examples mm-hmm. along with the definition that are controversial. Yeah, but like, even most of those are, like, okay. It's just maybe, like, one half or two that are, like, oh, maybe that, that is overstepping a bit. Like, um, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Two come to mind, and I wrote about one, only because I'm trying to use it as an yeah. illustration point for why it's problematic. You know, what I didn't want to do in this column is to be myself an arbiter of whether something is anti-Semitic or not. I am not, right? But it is correct. I think the right-wing Israeli position, I would agree that they're saying we should be allowed to define our Mm -hmm. own oppression, which is correct. One of the responses to the column was a post or an alert from a group Honest Reporting Canada, which, uh, I mean, they're a very effective advocacy organization, but they're very effective at what they do. They headlined it, Toronto Star columnist Shri Paradkar wrongly claims IHRA definition of anti-Semitism seeks to stifle criticism of Israel. And, I mean, you know, Honest Reporting itself has cited the definition in seeking to stifle things like boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaigns, but, of course, they they don't see that as, as legitimate criticism. 
the groups you cited, what they described as an assortment of organizations known for their anti-Israel animus, including Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, Independent Jewish Voices, uh, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and the Canadian Association of University Teachers. And they called them all fringe organizations. What about the 40 Jewish groups around the world who had a joint statement in 2018 who said that they did not agree with that definition. I mean... It's the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? Right. So at first I'm told you're not Jewish. How dare you write about Mm -hmm. it? Which would not have been told if I had agreed with the definition. So really my identity is not at play. Then it was, well, you've quoted this one guy. So it's Michael uh, Buchert. He's not Jewish. He's from the Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. And then it's like, well, what about these Jewish people? Oh, well, they're fringe. Or they're actually Jewish haters. So essentially it boils down to only talk to us. And people who think like us, and us meaning right-wing, pro-Israel lobby groups, right? And on this reporting, whatever that means... There is a comprehensiveness to what they do, and the strategy, like, they're not shy about it. They're what they lay out on their website, they have a step-by-step guide to how to monitor the media. And it's actually great advice for any group that would want to do this, because it shows how, like, I mean, as a person who was an activist before being a journalist, I'm reading this like, wow, this is a great guide to activism in terms of, um, for example, meeting phase two. Imagine you get a meeting with an organization whose coverage you have an issue with. It says, at the end of the meeting, make them a deal. If they will agree to regular meetings, you'll promise to restrain your rapid response team and to restrict your complaints to only major errors. This takes tremendous pressure off the media, who abhor being flooded with email complaints and all the bad publicity. This also creates an ongoing dialogue whereby local editors will eventually turn to honest reporting activists as a resource on the Israeli perspective. And, you know, their website has a thing, there's a tip for, like, you know, honest reporting candidates always on the lookout for media bias. If you see a news report that you feel is biased against Israel, please send us the details using the form below. It's as an, it's a very uh, well set up advocacy well, organization. And, and advocacy for Israel should be distinct from advocacy to point out anti-Semitism. They also are explicit. It's about Israel. Generally, they, they say it is an organization that pushes back against yeah anti-Israel. Bias. Yeah, there's no editor who, or there aren't editors who want to have to deal with the backlash and having to respond and having to appear, having to show that they are actually fair-minded and having to both sides the issue. You know, nobody wants to deal with the ethics of this all the time. And it is a deterrent. But I don't think that should be the reason that we should abandon principle. One can reject Zionism without being anti-Semitic. And that is something that the person who wrote that definition of the IHRA himself said. He Mm. did not want to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. The purpose of writing those examples was to take the temperature over time, he says, to see if academics can do some research, Mm -hmm. gather data Mm -hmm. to see, is there a correlation between Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel? And that's all it was. I mean, one of the best case study of how this actually has played out in a newsroom I've seen is the publication, the magazine formerly known as the Ryerson Review of Journalism, now it's more ambiguously called the Review of Journalism. They published a feature this past spring by Rahaf Farawi called the CBC's Palestine Exception. It offered interviews with a lot of past and current CBC people who testified to the effectiveness of Honest Reporting's approach in particular. But it also pointed to another thing that I was also looking into, and I was really impressed that they already got there. The CBC Ombudsman Jack Nagler receives thousands of complaints each year on a whole range of topics, and there's does a few dozen reviews a year. Sort of like, like judicial decisions, they sort of methodically analyze the merits of a given complaint and whether a particular piece of CBC coverage has in some respect violated their journalistic standards and practices. So far this calendar year, there have been 45 reviews total. 
of which eight, or almost a fifth, have concerned the CBC's coverage of Israel slash Palestine. All eight of those were addressing complaints from people who believe that the CBC's coverage was unfair to Israel. Um, but I was struck by something in his annual report from June. And this report covered the period from April 2021 through this past March. He wrote that while supporters of both sides were active as always, it was noteworthy that the clear majority of people who wrote expressed the view that the CBC's coverage has been unfair to Palestinians. And when the Review of Journalism um, asked him, this was before his report, when they asked him, like, why is he only addressing complaints from one side, he said, the reason those complaints were reviewed is not because I determined these were the most important issues to explore. It's because the, those were the people who asked for a review, which is super fascinating to me because I had never looked into the process for it. It hadn't occurred to me that you have to specifically ask for a review yeah. in order to get one. And what is this level of media literacy you're exactly. demanding of people where even journalists like you and I mm. don't know that, that you're supposed to use those words and say, do a media review. Two of the eight complaints were from the head of Honest Reporting. I think he's name-dropped in another. You know, somebody calls the public editor, somebody's calling other mm. editors. They've really figured out how to basically affect change with the media in a way that, like, when you're an activist, my God, like, that's what, <laughs> that's, that's what you want, is you want things to be covered better, and which usually means, you know, closer to how you see it, to the framing you see it. I think, yeah, we should be able to look. We should have a media that's able to criticize, you know, something mm -hmm. that the Palestinians might do and criticize something that Israel is doing. But right now, the power dynamic is so skewed in favor of Israel. And, you know, the oppression of Palestinians has become so unbearable for all outsiders who have, you know, people like me who have no real dog in the fight, so to speak, except I have an anti-oppressional lens uh, to apply that I, I think time has come for media bosses to be able to say, I will back you. Don't be afraid. What do you need to say? Make sure that there is rigor in the reporting or in the column. Make sure that there is, you know, balance, there is context. Make sure all of that is there. But they should be saying, no, we are here for you. Don't feel alone. Because that's what happens. If a reporter writes about this and there is all that pushback and then the editors are unnerved as well, that really isolates the reporter. But if the editors have a spine and they are there for the reporter, then the reporter knows that, okay, the purpose of journalism is being served. Does the star have your back? The star has my back, yes. I'm glad to hear it. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Shri. Thank you so much for having me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Perhaps one day in the near future, we will also join Mastodon or some such. You can email me at jonathan at canadaland.com. I will at the very least read everything you send. Where can people find you, Shri? Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't say Twitter. <laughs> but I'm not there all the time, but I am at Shri Paradkar. Or I'm on email at esperadkar at thestar.ca. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capacchione and Cassidy Villabon-Baracus. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. The music is by SoCalled and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. 
And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll get an exclusive newsletter, which I think we're starting this week, discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live shows and virtual events, including a backbench thing coming up in a couple weeks. And more than anything, you'll be a part of a solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Join us now. Click the link in your show notes. Go to candleland.com join. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you.